So one of my best experiences with that was just kind of sitting around and a great cook just happened to be just kind of around and over, just overhear him talking. A few of us sort of gravitated towards uh, to the same area that he was at. I think I learned more about movement in that, you know, maybe our conversation that I did most of my life before then, you know. Um, Isn't it funny how that works? <laughs> that was pretty. And just, I mean, uh, I want to touch on this a bit later, but I just think it's amazing what social media has done for me to be able to connect with people like you and other researchers and other people I never would have met otherwise. Uh, I know it's got its downfalls, but. Uh, I, I do. I do have a very profound question. Sure. Um, the bike in the back, do you actually use it or do you hang clothes? <laughs> no, we have, so kind of funny story <laughs> with that. So when lockdown number one kind of happened for us up here, I think what you guys are doing down there is amazing. Let me just uh, preface everything with that. But uh, we actually, that was the only thing available was that monster <laughs> there. Um, Rogue was sold out of every bike. I like just out of the gym that, uh, that, that I'm in, we, we had a concept two bikes. I just liked, I just liked them for what they did. Uh, we couldn't get one anywhere. And yeah. uh, literally I call all the way up from, from here to Saskatchewan. That's like basically three quarters away the country and uh, couldn't find one anywhere. So wait, which uh, province are you in? In Ontario. Oh, so you're where you're East. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Saskatchewan's in the middle of nowhere. It, it's pretty, yeah. Now my, uh, my nieces, both actually, both my nieces are going to go to school to USASC there. So okay. um, just so happens just like a really flat province, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you guys can't, because I've asked uh, some of my Canadian friends um, to come to the ISSN conference in Florida, and one of them told me, in fact, I think she lives in Ontario, mm -hmm. she said the challenge is when she gets back, she has to pay $2,000 and get quarantined, and I don't know. If when you fly back, yeah, so yeah. Um, as it stands, it doesn't, we'd have to quarantine, like, not down there, obviously, it's a little, it's much more, uh, much more lax, which is great. I think it's awesome. But uh, for us to come back and be quarantined and then just kind of an, an extra two weeks outside of the time of the conference, it just doesn't, it's not feasible for, for most of us up here. Right. So yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, wow. Yeah. It's uh, it is, we can't really do much about that right now. So we kind of, we buried down and you know, what uh, my wife and I have just done is just kind of double down on our work and it's kind of paid uh, dividends that way. Right. Uh, right. So I'm just going to kind of run through basically just so some of the people that may not know you that uh, through uh, through your research and that kind of stuff. So 93, you got your uh, PhD. I did 1993 PhD, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center uh, in the area of muscle hypertrophy. Nice, nice. Uh, and then we got through to 96, your postdoctoral research in uh, metabolism and endocrinology. You're still a professor at uh, NSU Florida for exercise phys, sports supplements for athletic performance, Re uh, research method, independent study of sports nutrition. Uh, you're a, a CSCS and a fellow with the NSCA, co-founder, of course, of the uh, International Society of Sports Nutrition and the editor-in-chief of the journal, which is amazing. And um, also uh, one of the co-authored uh, co many textbooks, of course, and um, Probably spend more time on a stand-up paddleboard than uh, <laughs> anybody else I know. <laughs> yeah, certainly more than anyone in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know what? I, I, it's funny. Uh, 
I actually know Canadians who are avid uh, stand-up paddlers and um, some are former Olympic canoeists. If, I don't okay. know if you remember the, in, the, the Olympic canoe in, in Summer Olympics is, it looks like they're sort of half kneeling, half yeah. lunging. Yeah, some of those guys, when they, when they quit the, you know, when they stop competing, they actually go into stand-up paddling because it's one of those sports that, I mean, you go to real pretty places and you get to race on water. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> there's no there's downside to it. There's in the world you could be doing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I just think it's in such a difference. I've only tried it once. It felt like my feet were on fire the whole time because I was terrified of just not following in, but just you're like so stuck on that board, right? Oh, and yeah. You're, 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 your toes are like this on the board because <laughs> you don't want to fall off. And people are like, oh, my God, my feet hurt. I'm like, you just got to relax your feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't do that real well <laughs> i didn't fall in but i didn't go very fast either so <laughs> yeah so a few things i really wanted to kind of pick your brain about of course going in depth in some of the stuff that you're obviously super well versed when it comes to your research is uh, is protein is number one was kind of top of the list there i'm sure you get uh, questions on this stuff all the time but um with regards to my my practice in nutrition, I deal tons with either uh, hockey players, combat sport, and uh, um, just general, I call them everyday champions. And uh, what I wanted to touch on first before we got to protein was just more of when it comes to a calorie deficit, just for general population, um, just your, your, whether your findings or your, um, your, you know, your opinion when it comes to being in too deep or too long of a deficit and what that might do to someone? I think, okay, I think, I think the context of that question is really, let me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is more from the standpoint of body composition. Yes, not performance, yes, right. Exactly. And even, you know, even in South Florida, if you go to any gym, whether it's a uh, chain gym like LA Fitness or, or one that's just owned like uh, sort of, a, I call it a mom and pop gym, Body composition is number one. That's, you know, unless you're a, like a world-class athlete, people, they want to gain muscle and they want to lose fat. Um, so there's always a question of, well, how do you, you know, obviously to lose body fat, there has to be some sort of caloric deficit that you, uh, that you impose. And well, a couple things. One, the people who are really good at losing body fat and maintaining it from my personal observation, because these are, these are, difficult studies to do are the people who exercise a lot now yes. the caveat is people say well you, can't, you don't burn many calories exercising and you know what you're right <laughs> you don't i mean even people who go out and run for 30 to 60 minutes you know every day or every other day they're really not burning that much and it's so easy to get that back in food but i think what people miss is the behavior of exercise changes a lot of how you view food meaning mm -hmm. I mean, food is great to eat. It's fun. It's, um, I mean, it's something you should enjoy, but also people who train feel better if they eat a certain way. Um, so the question of how long you should maintain a deficit, I think is, is dependent on what your ultimate goal is in terms of body composition or body weight. Uh, for instance, I see a lot here, um, individuals who let's say they have an average, uh, you know, they need to lose maybe, you know, 10 kilos or something like that. Um, in order to attain that, I'll, I think there's a mindset that a lot of them don't have, but once they get it, it's maybe it's easier. If, I don't know if that's the correct word, but it's more feasible. And that once they permanently change how much they eat and what they eat, 
losing those 10 kilos, it might take a while, it might take a year, it might take two years, but you'll lose it and you'll maintain it. Right. And the key to that is the exercise part because that affects everything else. Now, I'm not sure that answers your question because I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking off the no, top. No, absolutely. Yeah, that to me, the most important component is still if you train like hell, if you train like crazy, a lot of it sort of takes care of itself, but it takes a long time. Whereas the people who are so focused on, I got to lose weight, I got to lose fat, I got to lose weight. They're so focused on that that oftentimes they'll do drastic cuts in, in caloric intake. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll also make the wrong cuts. They may, they may cut out protein because, hey, there's calories in protein, right? When in fact, the one thing you shouldn't cut and maybe elevate is protein intake and then maybe cut carbs and fat. And, and you know, fat especially because it's just calorically dense. It's easy to overeat. So I think that, you know, that might give you sort of a big picture of where I'm coming yeah, from. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess maybe to summarize, is it more so the, the habits that come along with quote unquote training like an athlete um, for that long-term success that might be kind of really beneficial for people trying to change their body composition? Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, I'm sure you've gotten this question a million times. I've gotten it a million times. I'm a bit older than you, so I've probably gotten it two million times. Uh, <laughs> the, idea, the idea of, you know, when people say, hey, I want to lose, you know, I, I want to get in shape and I want to lose weight. And, and, you know, I say, well, what's your goal? Well, my goal is I want to look pretty and, you know, I'm at waist to shrink. And, and, and more often than not, I'll say, you'll probably never be happy with your body composition. Because it's rare to find someone who's like, yeah, I think I look great. I don't need to lose. I don't need to change anything. So I try to convince people. I say, can you come up with a performance goal that you like? You know, and in South Florida, there's a million things you can do. Like they have those Spartan races where you run through mud and jump over stuff. I'm like, maybe you like that. Or maybe you want to train for a powerlifting meet or, or, or train for paddling. But if you focus on the performance and you train like an athlete, a lot of the other stuff starts to take care of itself. And then you're not so focused on how you look and how much you weigh and what your body comp is. And I see this a lot, you know, um, with people who, once they get that mindset, like, you know what, I've never viewed myself as an athlete, but you don't have to be a world-class athlete to be an athlete. Everyone has, you know, some sort of athletic uh, talent that's in them. I mean, we all, it's all uh, just a difference of degrees. And to me, that's the best way to approach it long-term is you got to, Think of yourself as an athlete. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's really, whenever I see people come in uh, dealing with even like pro hockey players, like those guys are animals and they, you know, they train insanely hard. So when you get younger ones or even just other people coming actually, in that are just. Actually, uh, sorry to interrupt you. You mentioned something that's critically important. They train insanely hard. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of people, and you know, I, I when I used to go to the commercial gyms, which I don't anymore, there are a lot of people, <laughs> I'm sure you run into them, that don't know really what insanely hard training is. They, no. they don't. They think, you know, <laughs> and because my wife was a, a distance runner in college and she oh. trains a lot of runners, a lot of these people think that if you're breathing heavy while you're running, you're running too hard. I'm right. like, what what <laughs> what are you doing when you're walking out there i mean so the the concept of training hard i hate to say it for most people they don't know what it means and also they don't know what real pain is when it comes to exercise they have no idea and so they're wondering how come that person is in great shape and look at he or she she can run run fast and they can lift a lot of weight i'm like 
do you know how hard these people train? <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. They're insane. I mean, you have to, I always say, you got to learn to embrace really hard exercise. You have to. But I think it's to really find as well, like your true, um, your true max. And I'm not saying, of course, when somebody's first coming into the gym, it should be like the first thing that you do only when someone's really prepared to see. I'm not just talking about one RMs. I'm just talking about like true output. What can you do on a rower or a bike yep. or whatever? Something safe that's you know different for everyone. That means something different for everyone. But I think to really push your output so you know where your training methods really lie, where your percentages really are, instead of just like a guesstimate. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to younger, you know, kids, I'll call them, but uh, they'll come in and say, wow, I want to look like him. But then we say, are you willing to train for two and a half hours a day and rest and never party uh, <laughs> eat like a machine basically? And they start going like one of those. Right. So <laughs> I think it's, I guess the level of sacrifice or willing to sacrifice really dictates the, the, how someone will look or the, how much they're willing to train for that. Yeah. And and it's interesting, you mentioned the word sacrifice. And I think a lot of younger people would view it as sort of a detriment to their life or as a sacrifice where, whereas there's a, a lot of us have a different mindset. It's like, well, actually, I'm not sacrificing anything. That's great. This is exactly <laughs> what I want. I mean, I mean, granted, when we're all young, we all stay up late. Maybe we drink a little too much and things like that. Um, but obviously, as you get older, you realize, okay, maybe that's not the best thing to do. I mean, <laughs> we have responsibilities now, you know, our family and kids or whatever. Um, but yeah, the idea of it being a sacrifice for most of the people I know who train hard, they don't view it that way at all. They're like, it's just what we do. It's just what I do. Yeah. And it's to those athletes that we have to, you know, there's some athletes we have to keep in a cage and some athletes we have to pull out of the cage, so to speak. Yep. Um, and if people are really uh, kind of approaching their training as, oh my God, I got to do this again. Oh, I can't, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, we have to find something else for them to do. You know, it's just. Um, I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people out there say that, uh, you know, you should be doing more of this kind of exercise or more of that. Well, maybe, but if they're not going to do it, I'd rather them train doing the stuff that they really like to do to get volume in. So they actually can make a difference in their, uh, in their fitness. Actually, I, I want to ask your opinion on this. Cause I have noticed the, the idea, particularly with uh, personal trainers that because I like this exercise, this is what you should do. And if you do all well, the I other stuff, um you're a sissy or something like that and and i think and this tell me if you've seen the same seen the same thing a lot of this comes from the physique world where people work with fit, fitness competitors bodybuilders etc cetera, etc cetera, where it's almost like if you're not lifting weights you're wasting your time and i'm thinking mm -hmm. my god there's like a million other things you could do if you don't like to lift weights but uh, i i see it so I see it constantly. And I, I always found, wow, that's, that is really a disservice to people. Yeah. I think it's more, a lot of times it's the inexperience of the coach and the uh, not enough exposure to other things. Cause we find like that echo chamber that kind of works for us when it comes to strength and conditioning, right? Hey, yeah. back squat, you know, 505, that makes you really strong or, you know, pushing a sled or ABC where you can insert every exercise here. But I feel uh, kind of alluded to earlier when it comes to uh, social media and that kind of stuff. Like I never would have reached out to uh, like a gymnast coach before right. and to see how they structure their programs when it comes to the amount of volume, when it comes to plyometrics and that kind of stuff. Cause I just started to see the correlation there. So I think that it's uh, really valuable for younger coaches to really get exposed to stuff that's on the opposite end of the spectrum. So if they are, 
a weightlifter, maybe they should spend more time with powerlifters and vice versa. So they can see some cross-sectional uh, or some crossover, I should say, from one exercise really to the next. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think particularly if you're a, if you call yourself a strength and conditioning coach or a personal trainer or something like that, it's good to be exposed to all those different points of view, because I think at the end of the day, there's a you. There's utility to a lot of different exercises. Mm-hmm. I tell most people, I'm like, look, you're not making money off your body. You're not a professional athlete. <laughs> so, so to be sort of stuck in this little bubble where this is the only thing that is good for your body, it's like, well, you know, if you sort of open your mind, there, there could be other things that you might enjoy. But, but at the end of the day, you're not making money. Is, you're not mm-hmm. a professional athlete. So, oh, you know. for sure. And I think it's uh, the value of. Um, even with the higher end athletes where some athletes have something going on, obviously any athlete, whether it's a combat athlete or, you know, it doesn't matter the type of athlete, there's going to be bumps and bruises and extra volume that we're going to have to kind of combat in the off season. So to find exercises for them, maybe their back is all jacked up and they can't do a back squat or a front squat. They can't, you know, axial load whatsoever. We have to just belt squat. That's me. Right. So (laughs) the belt squat is them is an amazing alternative for that. Does it, do you have to do this big, you know, bilateral back squat to be, get stronger? No, you'll just be a better back squatter. Well, I don't know if you're not hip thrusting, you're not lifting. So right. <laughs> lots of that. <laughs> Make sure you hip thrust every other day. <laughs> my, my wife would uh, argue on how much we actually uh, throw that into our programming. So <laughs> <laughs> All right. So just, I wanted to touch on a couple of things that in my opinion, when it comes to people's success, when it comes to nutrition programs, I feel that sometimes really gets lacked or overlooked. And just to kind of get your view and maybe research that you've touched on is just uh, keeping them satiated and something that they can do uh, satiated throughout the day and just something that uh, they can control hunger with. Um, so on, in your opinion or your research, what do you feel are some mechanisms or approaches that you've seen that works well for, for subjects? Okay. I, th- I think the first thing is, um, changing the way someone eats or changing their diet, I think is the hardest thing to do. Uh, in fact, almost everyone, I know all my friends are like, I'd rather exercise more than change the way I eat because I like what I eat, whatever it is. Um, so that's number one. Uh, and in fact, a brief segue. Um, that's why I have never actually done a diet study. I know a lot of people refer to my high protein diet studies, but technically I didn't change anyone's diet. All I did was here's protein powder, consume a lot of it, <laughs> you know? So okay. d- diet is, a, is, God, is just almost impossible to change. However, the way I view it is uh, I first see, you know, what do you typically like to eat? What do you, what do you, what did you grow up eating? For instance, in South Florida, you have Cubans, you have Venezuelans, you have a lot of mixed race people who, what they grew up eating as kids are things that they're probably going to keep eating as an adult. So the question is, okay, how do you modify that so they eat better? Um, and that's why, you know, these different diet cults that pop up, whether it's um, you got to eat only meat or you got to be a vegan or something like this where you're so limited, uh, I just don't think is realistic for 99% of the population. So you get people and you, you, you find out what they typically eat, what they like to eat. And I don't think you should ever say, don't ever eat this stuff again. Uh, I think that's just, I think mentally it, it, it sort of builds this idea that, wow, they just told me not to eat it again, but I really like eating it. So I'm going to eat it more because I don't like what you're telling me. Um, so working within the confines of what they normally eat, 
I think the key thing to add dietarily, and I emphasize this with everyone, is can you make a small substitution of protein with carbs or fat? Because at the, most people who don't even realize, you know, once they start following, following their diet, they, they realize, wow, I actually eat mostly carbs and fat. I mean, and not as much protein. So I don't say eliminate anything, but just, you know, maybe have a larger piece of chicken and less of a potato, or maybe, you know, in the morning, instead of having your traditional breakfast, whether it's pancakes or waffles or whatever, have a protein shake so that you're just making small substitutions. But at the end of the day, I don't want people to change the way they eat because it, it's, it's almost impossible to make a permanent change in, in the way they eat. And based on studies I've done, the people who are really good at changing the way they eat, and I'll, there's a caveat here, are bodybuilders. Why? Because they know food is directly related to how they look because you know, it's basically you know, physique. How do you look? However, they know that it's not the way they eat isn't permanent. It's just, you know, they might gain weight in the off season and then they diet for a show. Um, so there's a utility to the way they eat. If you ask them if they like to eat this way, like, no, I don't like to eat this way. It's just a means of a, it's, it's a means to an end is what it is. Right. Um, and I, I would imagine when they stop competing, they're not going to keep eating that way. So for them, it just serves some sort of, it's, uh, it's a utility for them. It's a tool for them. Um, but outside of bodybuilders who are really good at changing the way they eat, most people don't. I mean, they'll make little changes here and there. And that's why I always suggest make small changes, make small substitutions. And if you make small sub substitutions for a long time and are compliant, which is hard for a lot of people, you know, being yes. compliant, then you'll see changes. Um, but a lot of people, and you know this, they have our time looking at this uh, over the long haul. You know, when I say, hey, can, can you do this for a year? And they're like, a year? I'm like, well, what? <laughs> what do you expect? I mean, it's a month. <laughs> do this for a year, eat more protein, eat a little less carbs and fat, and I guarantee you'll lose some fat. It'll take a year. Maybe it'll take two years. Maybe it'll take three months. I mean, I don't know. But I think there's that the fact that a lot of people, they want a specific time frame. And they want it to be fast. It's like, it can't be like a year. It has to be, you know, more like one to three months. Can't do that, man. You can't do that. No, and that's kind of when, you know, during intakes for, um, for my clients, I think it's real. I make it really realistic. I just show them like a very, a, a really low key goal, just about a 0.6% um, loss per week of their total body weight as a goal for most of them just to kind of show how much time it's really going to take if they have a 50 pound goal, like you said, it may take all year. Um, and again, of course, that's never a guarantee because it could be faster, could be slower, could have times as fluctuations as uh, of course, as everyone knows. Um, I just love that uh, the approach that you have, because that's really kind of what we're trying to instill in everyone is just find foods that you're already eating and how can we just make it so you're not eating as much and maybe right. including a bit more protein. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, um, I was on Twitter earlier today and um, there's a fairly large content. Well, I don't know if it's large, but they're quite vocal. Uh, <laughs> people who only eat meat. So the carnivores, yeah. right? And, you know, personally, I don't care what you eat, to be honest. You want to eat just meat, eat meat. But it always surprises me when I think, you know what? The vast majority of the, of the world consumes carbs. And when you look at, let's, and like, let's, and let's focus on the industrialized nations, Japan, in parts of China, um, they're eating mostly carbs. And if you've been to Japan, I, I was in Japan a few years back, 
I was so taken aback that when I got there, I'm like, this, there's something odd about this country and I can't put my finger on it. And then I realized there are no fat people here. I was, I was, I was like, that's what it is. I was like, I started looking around. I'm like, wow, nobody here is fat. And when I did find someone who was overweight, I was like, wow, this is like the United States back in, you know, the 1960s or 70s where the overweight person was actually unusual. Whereas now the overweight person is usual. It's that's what you normally see. Seeing people in shape is now the exception. So if a country like Japan can eat primarily carbs, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, common sense has to kick in. It's like, wait a minute, if carbs are the enemy, how come they're not fat? And exactly. I guess they ignore it. I mean, maybe you just ignore it. You're like, oh, well, let's forget they're in Japan. We're in the United States or Canada or whatever. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't just ignore that. No, and that's kind of, no, it's funny you brought that up because it's kind of part of a like, second part to what leading into this question was more with, you know, the prevalence of obesity in, especially North America, we can kind of preface, of course, there's other countries that have it, but mostly North America. Um, what do you feel is really contributing? I think I already, I know the answer to this, I feel, but what do you feel is really contributing to the uh, obesity epidemic? Um, well, I'm a bit older than you, so I lived through, so I was born in the 60s. I was a child of the 70s. And I remember as a kid, there were not many fat kids. In fact, there was, we always said there was the one fat kid in class. Now it's, there's the one skinny kid in class. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of changed very quickly. I think what's happened, there's a few things happen, at least in the United States. I don't know if in Canada, this is the same or in Mexico. And I think Mexico might, might actually have higher rates of obesity than the US or Canada, but there's no longer physical education. They don't teach kids how to move. Um, big problem. And, uh, hey, PE was my favorite class. I get to go outside and run around and play. I was like, yeah, this is great. And I'm like, wow, there's no PE anymore for a lot of kids. That's number one. Number two, the prevalence, and, and I, it's funny, I always get in arguments about this, but there's the, the prevalence of hyper palatable, hyper, calorically dense food that is cheap, i.e. fast food. Mm -hmm. um, when I was a kid, going to McDonald's was a treat because it was maybe you did it once a month or something. It's like, yeah, I get to go to McDonald's. Now people go to McDonald's probably a couple of times a week, three times a week, because it's cheap, it's easy, it's, it's easy calories. Now, it's very easy to overconsume calories because of the prevalence of, you know, calorically dense, hyper palatable foods. And your mouth likes it, your brain likes it, so it's easy to do. So I think those two factors and the fact that, you know, people inherently are averse to the exercise of pain. No one likes the pain of exercise, but once you start doing it and you like how you feel, you embrace it. But most of humanity is like, you know, this kind of hurts. I don't think I want to do this. Um, in fact, there was a, a, a tweet I saw earlier, uh, this guy, a scientist, he says, I think I'll go out for a run now just to further ruin my day. <laughs> I was like, I was like oh, yeah, you're going to piss off all the runners there. Um, <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's the de-emphasis on physical education, the, the access to easy to consume calorically dense food. And in fact, I've heard that might be the reason why in China, rates of obesity are rising because there's just fast food restaurants popping up all over the place which is interesting. You don't see a lot of it in Japan, which is kind of interesting. They still have, they still eat their traditional food of rice, fish, and vegetables. Um, but I think it's those two things. Now, with that said, I hate to say it because people get pissed off, but there's still personal responsibility here. 
<laughs> no one's making you eat this stuff. I eat fast food every now and then, but I don't eat it all the time. You can't, maybe this is the wrong word and you can correct me, bl blaming the food industry for, your, for you being overweight or obese just doesn't make sense to me because they're not forcing you to eat anything. And, and of course, if, if you work for a, a food, if you work in a food industry, your goal is to sell food, regardless of what it is. If, if I work for, you know, the company that makes Pop-Tarts, I don't know who it is. Um, and I'm like, you know what? I need to make Pop-Tarts taste so good that people buy it and they eat a lot of it because then we make money. It's not their fault that they're making it easy and tasty and, and fun to eat. It's your fault for eating too much of it. Now, I know people say, well, they start marketing to you when you're kids. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't know anything. So now you want Pop-Tarts, you want ice cream, you want cookies. I said, yeah, but at the end of the day, parents are still buying the stuff. Kids aren't buying it. And parents have to teach their kids how they should eat. I mean, it still goes back to the family unit. If your parents aren't teaching you this, then you can't really blame Nabisco for selling you crackers. You got to I mean, maybe the blame lays on your parents, but I just don't like, this is what I don't like. I don't like personal responsibility being sort of set to the side and everyone always looking for some external factor. That, that just bugs me. It's like, you control what goes in your mouth. So it's more like, I guess to say it's not, oh, it's not me, it's this, or it's not mm -hmm. me, it's that, whether it's exercise or nutrition. Yep. Um, I think the, uh, the, how easily we have access to hyper palatable foods, even on Uber Eats and that kind of stuff, you don't even have to leave your house anymore and you can get it delivered. I don't think that's going to do anyone any favors. You know, you know, we had a brief lockdown in Florida and I learned all sorts of stuff. I'm like, wow, I can order this food and I'll just drop it off. <laughs> this is awesome. I love this. So, you know, so the ironic part is even with no lockdown, I still, I still order food a lot that way. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go on my phone. What do I want? Yeah, I think I'll get beef and broccoli. I mean, I love the technology. I love the entrepreneurship that, that's come from it. Um, but yeah, it's, God, it's so easy to get food. It's, I mean, and to put some perspective on this, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, at least globally, the issue was not getting too much food. It was starvation. There were countries where literally humans were still starving. We've changed that in, in a half century where starvation, what? It's, it's the, the world is getting fat. I mean, food is so abundant that we've basically taken care of, you know, avoiding starvation. But now we've, you know, we've created a different problem, which is, you know, kind of interesting. Yeah, I think it's um, with the amount of inactivity because of our new busy lives schedule, you know, versus what we had to do back, you know, quote unquote, back in the day where there's way more manual labor jobs and way more things that you just had to go out for. Um, I think we're seeing a much different world with us kind of staying within our four walls, really contributing to uh, to that. And it's kind of our own personal responsibility to take steps literally to uh, to combat that. Yeah. And you know what? And I know it's probably more difficult for you up there, but one of the reasons I like living in South Florida is I could go outside all year and I could always exercise outside. And I have no idea what it's like when you're stuck indoors and it's like, you know, minus 10 degrees Celsius. I'm like, holy crap, what do you guys do up there? <laughs> I guess you're uh, on that bike. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's awful. <laughs> it, it's so, being on that thing, it's so funny where 
you know, you'll do like a 20 or 30 second sprint. Maybe if you're feeling froggy, you'll do a minute and then, then maybe just really think about your life's decisions after that and wondering why I spent money on that thing. Um, we do have like another uh, bike for uh, that's just a, a spin bike in the, in the other room, but uh, okay. that we just, just got, cause we couldn't, you can't use that. I can't use it every day. Like I'm you know, <laughs> late forties. I'm not jumping on that thing every single day. Um, so now because just kind of my own, since I have you here, uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on with me dealing with so many hockey players, um, just dealing with uh, intermittent sports and nutrition really kind of based, not just based for that, but just kind of based around that. Um, your take on approaches that, uh, I, whether it's a young hockey player or whomever, just a, an athlete, uh, could take um, in just in helping themselves improve a little bit of performance, whether it's through protein, carbohydrates, uh, or added calories through fat. Mm -hmm. So just the nutrition part as it relates to young athletes. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, we, you know, uh, hockey, obviously, it's much more, uh, much more popular up north, northern states <laughs> and, and Canada than in South Florida. Although, believe it or not, there are kids who play hockey here, which I oh, that's amazing. Found, yeah, I find it odd. I'm like, and I've walked it because I know some figure skaters as well. And when I walk into the rink, I'm like, holy crap, it is cold in here. <laughs> you know? I'm like, but then you walk outside, you're like, oh, now it's nice and oh, hot. But anyway, <laughs> whether you're a young hockey player and down here, we have a lot of young football players. We have young baseball players. Um, I, and actually I, I give a, um, a talk at a local high school uh, to track and field and cross country. And I try to keep it very, very simple because if you start bombarding them with um, mm -hmm. too much information, their eyes will gloss because it's the TikTok generation. You better get them in the first five seconds. seconds. Let's go. <laughs> That's right. You know, so, um, and I would say maybe half of them will listen and then half of that half will implement it, which I'm like, wait, that's great. Half of the half implement it. Simple stuff. Um, I don't tell them to not consume certain foods. They're like, hey, is it okay to eat pizza? I'm like, yeah, pizza's good. I eat pizza. I wouldn't eat every day though, but it's okay. Um, is it okay to eat ice cream? Yeah, eat ice cream. I'm not going to tell you that I'd eat, eat ice cream. However, do this very simple thing for me. And we're talking, I'm not sure how old when you're referring to youth, I'm thinking ages 14 to 18, you know, somewhere yeah, in that range exactly, before they go yeah. to university. I said, do this one thing for me. We'll start with simple stuff. If you can't do this, then I can't tell you anything that's more complicated. After you work out, even if you do two a day. So if you do train once, this is easy to train twice. You just got to do it twice. Drink a protein shake. That's 30 to 40 grams right after you train. That's it. If you can do that one thing and let's say, cause a lot of these high school kids, they do multiple sports. So they're training a lot. Imagine if you did that twice a day on, you know, Monday through uh, Friday, if you're doing a couple sports or you're training twice, you're getting 80 grams of protein right there, just from the shake. And then eat your normal meals. I know most of you eat like crap, which is fine. I mean, everyone does in your age, but at least you're getting those 80 grams and maybe you'll get 80 grams from the food you eat. And I, you know, I say, Hey, if you eat enough pizza, you'll get the protein, but you got to eat a hell of a lot of pizza. Um, or hamburgers. Yeah. It's kind of junky, but you know, eventually you get the protein. So I stick to that very simple message post-workout protein, because it's one of the few times when either the coach can control it. The coach will say, Hey, before you go home, get a shake, drink it, go home. Um, outside of that, it's hard to control anything when you're working with youth. And I remember when, um, when I used to work, uh, I used to, 
uh, coach softball here. So we're talking young girls because uh, my kids played softball. That's the one thing I emphasize is like, hey, after we're done training, you know, drink a glass of milk or, you know, if you can do the protein shake, drink a protein shake. And if you can do that, I think it'll go a long way towards meeting your protein needs because kids out of the carbs, protein, fat, they're, they, they're, it's most difficult for them to consume, in my opinion, enough protein. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard a kid ever in the history of humankind say, you know, coach, I'm having a hard time getting carbs. How do I do it? I'm like, really? I'm getting carbs? That's all I ate when I was a kid. You know, give me a pixie stick and I would pour sugar down my throat. <laughs> Those are amazing. <laughs> they are. I don't know where they are anymore, but I'm like, God, I can't believe I literally poured colored Just, sugar down. That's my throat. all it is. I mean, what a sales pitch though, eh? We're going to put colored sugar in this paper stick and we're going to sell it for an absorbent amount of money. <laughs> and I loved it, you know, so, so that I think if we keep the message simple, and in fact, even, even at the university would try to keep the message simple. In fact, that the whole nutrient timing thing, I think is important because it's easy to understand, you know, but then, you know, you might get into, okay, well, now that I've mastered that, what do I do? What can I do maybe pre or during the game? You know, if I play soccer or run cross country, or play football, I'm like, okay, now, now we're talking something that might be a little bit more complex, but at least at least master the simple stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, an up here. I think for most teenage boys in particular, um, in our sports up here, we see such a prevalence of them trying to take pre-workout with an absurd amount of caffeine. Um, and we don't really know the long-term effects, how that's going to affect people so young consuming caffeine. Not that I've seen those studies yet, but um I think that try to get the message across to kind of just ease their way into nutrition will probably gain them a lot more benefit instead of getting complicated and just really going down the calculations and that kind of stuff when it comes to their macros. Yeah, keep it simple. But the other thing I would recommend, and I did this with my daughters when they were little, believe it or not, is even for youth athletes, hockey is a perfect example, is take creatine, take three grams a day of creatine. Um, there's plenty of safety data. It's safe for kids. We, there's even data on infants that consume creatine that if you consume three grams of creatine and hockey, remember people forget hockey is a contact sport where concussions are somewhat prevalent that even if you don't care about how it affects performance, it's going to help your brain. And to me, if you play soccer, if you play hockey, if you box, if you wrestle, if you play football, any contact sport where there's a possibility of head trauma, Take creatine because it might have a prophylactic effect in terms of limiting brain trauma when you, you know, when you're involved in a collision. So to me, protein and creatine, you know, is like the king and queen of the chessboard. You got, you got to take both of those. I think it's awesome. And just for, uh, for, for reference for people that are going to be listening and watching, um, Dr. Antonio actually wrote the textbook on creatine. So that's where much of this information will come from. So it's not, uh, it's definitely a solid source. Um, I think it's crazy because creatine has been around for so long. And just today I seen a picture in you of you in the best suit ever oh. <laughs> defending creatine like 20 years ago. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, I know what picture you're referring to. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I did a bunch of different interviews with Jeff Stout. Who's a, he's a professor at university of central Florida. And, uh, a, a sort of backstory to this, um, 
he and I started out as a student sort of at the same time and we graduated roughly same time. I'm a little older than him. Uh, we started in academic same time. We even, we both actually worked in the industry at the same time. But how old are you? When were you, what year were you born? 75. 75. I don't know if you remember in the 19, up until about nine, maybe the year 2000, um, sports nutrition wasn't a field of study academically. In fact, most academicians, PhDs, medical doctors, they kind of made fun of sports nutrition. Like, yeah, protein, only bodybuilders eat that crap. We don't need that, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and Dr. Stout and I were like, you know what? They're wrong. They're just wrong. And I remember we decided to write a book called Sports Supplements. And if you remember, the word supplement just had a negative connotation. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. So we're like, you know, screw these people. We like supplements. <laughs> we don't care what anyone thinks. So we wrote that book, Sports Supplements. It was that uh, lime green cover. Still my favorite book, to be honest, out of all the books I've done. And um, starting in the year 2000 till now, it's 21 years later, the the field of sports nutrition as an academic field of study has exploded. Every major university now has a sports nutrition course. A lot of them have graduate programs where they focus on sports nutrition. If you go before the year 2000, that did not exist. It was not a legitimate field of study. So one of the things Dr. Stout and I emphasize is like, hey, look, we both can't be right. Either sports nutrition is a legit legitimate field of study or we're just you know, a couple of morons, but we were right <laughs> because <laughs> it's clearly a legitimate field of study because now people are studying this for their doctoral dissertation. And, and as you alluded to, you know, I've written a few books. I forgot about that book on creatine. It's funny. I was like, yeah, I did write a book on creatine. Holy oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's funny how in two decades, it literally, it has transformed both on the science side and on the industry side. I mean, now people like you who aren't scientists, but you have access to all this information. It's, it's literally, it's on your phone. You're like, you can just look it up. It's so cool. That's really, and that was kind of, that was the mind blowing part of um, when it comes to my own like coaching journey of trying to find an edge. And that was always, I felt um, when it came to training, I just felt that you just train really, really hard. If you're kind of smart about it with some kind of terms that you're working with, then you should be set whether you're training as a weightlifter or powerlifter or sprinter or whatever the case was, especially way back when um, there was no one training, let alone anyone eating right. right. I still remember what my, oh, I don't even know, I was late teens and uh, my sister's boyfriend at the time making fun of me for taking protein. He's like, <laughs> that's just, I, that's just aspirin. You're going to walk around here like this. I could do that. You know, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I don't think it's aspirin. So <laughs> well, no, what's funny is those kinds of views were, are, are fairly recent. It's not like, it's not like this was a hundred years ago. It's like, wait a minute. I remember. And uh, I don't know if you, uh, do you go to the NSCA conference, National Strength and Conditioning? No, I haven't yet. I haven't yet. Yeah, I, I haven't been going in. Uh, I haven't gone in a while, but I remember when it started. It started, I want to say the late 70s, early 80s. And people made fun of these guys, you know, the ones who started the NSCA. And, and I remember going to the American College of Sports Medicine conference and <laughs> and the attitude that a lot of these scientists had towards resistance training. This isn't that long ago. <laughs> I, I remember overhearing conversations like, 
ah, weight training. It's just for bodybuilders. You don't really need to lift weights. You just got to do cardio. Well, actually they said you got to do aerobic training. And they were very anti-resistance training. It was just, and this is recent. I mean, I'm a, I'm a college student. I'm hearing this. I'm like, these people are really crazy here. <laughs> They're really crazy. They're very, how could your anti-weight training? What, what the hell is that? Um, and so these kind of attitudes, being anti-weight training, being anti-supplement, being anti-protein, being anti-creatine, these are recent things. This mm -hmm. isn't a hundred years. This is recent. And it's still, it's still common, somewhat common now. In fact, I had a student send me, she's like, you're not going to believe this PowerPoint slide. So she screenshotted it, sent it to me. <laughs> and I was like, what? It listed all the negative side effects of consuming protein. <laughs> I was like, she's like, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say. This is, this is her presentation. I'm like, Oh my God, uh, what? <laughs> so this is happening today, today. <laughs> I, I think it's great. And of course, when I think there's such a level with the amount, as you had kind of alluded to, the amount of access to information that we have is it's insane. And, but to also have people that don't really know, cause they're not in the field. And I told that I can appreciate, uh, especially when it comes to parents with giving their kids protein or, hey, I don't want to give my kids a protein shake. But then what I always like to tell them is that what I want you to do is I want you to walk down to the baby aisle next time you're in the grocery store and take a look at the baby formula and tell me what you find is one of the ingredients there. And then they always say, well, why? And I, well, you're going to find whey protein in just about any uh, baby formula out there. So um, I think there's a lot more of education when it comes to outside of what we do that has to, that has to happen. Um, and I feel, which is kind of funny where we'll see this all over social, where people that are absolute quacks and have zero knowledge on a base because they have a big following a lot, they have a really loud voice. And I don't think that should be the case. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how you get around that. Um, mm. uh, yeah, it seems like if you win the popularity contest, people will listen to you and, mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's that. I always say the, the the good thing the good thing about social media is that now you have access to the experts. The bad thing about social media is now you have access to the idiots. <laughs> so, you know, so if you don't know who the experts, are, like if I decided, you know what, I want to learn more about um, auto mechanics. I don't know anything about how a car works. I wouldn't know who the expert is. I would just, you know, I'm like, okay, who's a car expert? And then you have some guy saying, yeah, if you put sugar in the gas tank, it'll run really well. I'm like, hey. I'm gonna put sugar in a gas tank. <laughs> so I, I can see it's really difficult for the average person who's not educated in our field to be completely confused. In fact, they say that all the time. They're like, I don't know what to believe anymore. Eggs are good, eggs are bad, protein good, protein bad. I'm like, how do I know? Really? I'm like, yeah, I guess it is. It's tough. It's really tough. And I just feel with every other person coming out with some other going to really at great lengths to seem like an expert, I think is a terrible thing where you get some people saying that fruit is terrible for you. It's worse than candy. Uh, just, you know, or they take some small snippet of a study that they don't understand and turn that into fitting into their echo chamber of them. Look, I'm right. This is, this is the way it should be. Yeah. I, um, I think that they, <laughs> to be able to quote those, you should, there should be a, like we have to, if we're going to submit to a journal, like that goes to, to our peers and we get reviewed. Um, that doesn't happen in social media. And I think if people were putting out content, like informational content outside of entertainment, I think maybe if there's a way to do that would be great. 
Yeah, and I think uh, there's also the lack of, not the, there's, a, I guess, a lack of nuance, but more so, you're right, people want to, they want to believe what supports their preconceived notions. So they, they'll, if they read something that's a bit contrary to what they think, they'll immediately criticize it and say, oh, that, that study is not valid, without actually giving a reason as to why a study is not valid. Or they'll come up with, you know, I always tell students, there's a million and one ways to criticize studies. It's actually not that hard. Once you learn to do it, you're like, wow, it's easy to pick these studies apart. I'm like, yes, it is because they're so limited. <laughs> I mean, people think that you could just measure everything and put every variable in and, and have like a 10,000 subjects. I'm like, no, it's like we're doing little itty bitty things and hoping that all the little itty bitty things we do can give you some semblance of, of knowledge that's you know practical and transferable to people. So um, I think a lot of people I know just criticize science just for the hell of it. It's like, ah, that study is awful. I, those people don't know what they're doing. And it's, it's like, yeah, well, science is hard. That's why there's not many people do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I remember you, you said on, a, on another podcast, I can't remember which one it was, but uh, someone was, had criticized the length of your high protein study saying, oh, well, one year, well, you have to do it for five years or whatever the... <laughs> Exactly. Like it's that easy to find that many subjects to eat that level of protein for five to 10 years. It, you know what? It's even hard to get here. Here's, here's a quick story. I'm, I'm trying to do a crash diet study. Um, how much weight can you lose in one week um, while maintaining different levels of protein intake? And you tell me if this would be difficult. You take your baseline caloric intake and, and I tell you, just cut it in half for one week. Can you do it? <laughs> you know what i'm thinking what i don't know if i could do it i think i just get really mad and grumpy if i had to cut my calories by half um so in our initial pilot study where we did this uh i think we did eight people five people dropped out after two days and these are people who are trained who, who are good at watching what they eat but they said they can't do this so when people, you know, when people read these studies, they're like, well, how hard is it to get people to diet, you know, if they want to lose weight? I'm like, it's hard to get people to do anything. <laughs> you think people are robots and just turn them on and yeah, sure, I'll be in your study. Um, you know, I can't wait to eat a thousand calories. <laughs> I know, really. This will be so fun. <laughs> oh, and even, oh, even the high protein diet ones. Uh, and, it, tech, you know, I hate to say it, it's not really a diet study. We were just giving them a bucket full of protein powder. Um, that was, we had 20, I want to say 25% of our subjects dropped out. They said they can't, uh, they said they can't, or they don't want to eat this much. It's, it's just too hard to eat this much. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, you know, <laughs> that's the beauty of studies. You can drop out anytime you want. So it's not, it's actually pretty difficult. And I think that's, that's the part, you know, it's all, everyone sees, it's sort of like everyone sees the end of the movie and they're like, oh, that's how it ends. But no one ever sees how the movie is made, mm -hmm. all the things that go wrong in making it. They just see the movie and the ending. So everyone sees the ending, which is the publication, but they don't see all the other stuff that happened to get to that point. And it gets messy, it gets sloppy. It's, you know, it's, it's like any other process. I think it's a great way to put it. Just the behind the scenes, you don't see the, uh, 
you know, you, you don't see that. And then you don't really care about the, the end credits at the, at the end of it. either, right. Right? <laughs> Yeah. No one reads the credits. Like this no. took forever. You know, and, we and lost you all grip. <laughs> And you've got a grip just waiting at the end of the movie. Going, that's me. That's me. <laughs> so I just wanted to touch on some supplements that uh, to kind of get your, uh, I feel like going through the position stands, obviously a few times and just mm -hmm. to, I feel I picked some that, had some merit and to kind of, if there has been any changes in, in those as well. And also kind of stuff that's come feel pretty recently was that not the ISSN change of stance, but just a very popular opinion when it comes to uh, BCAA. So branch chain amino acids and kind of like the, I guess we can call it a flip-flop when it comes to opinion of, uh, of usefulness when it comes to uh, BCAAs. So mm -hmm. would you mind kind of touching on that a little bit? Well, I think the branch chain amino acids, I think where people, people are only viewing it from the lens of would branch chains do, would BCAAs help with enhancing muscle hypertrophy or growth within the context of resistance training? The answer to that is, yeah, it might a little, but whole protein's better. I don't even think that's controversial, but I think where people <laughs> make sort of this emotional statement afterwards is. Therefore, branched-chain amino acids are a waste and don't waste your money. So people go from being sports nutritionists to being financial advisors. They're like, no, it's a waste of money. Don't spend your money on it. There is data on branched-chain amino acids uh, alleviating delayed onset muscle soreness. In fact, there's a lot of studies on it. The people I know who tend to use branched-chain amino acids don't use it for muscle hypertrophy. They use it for delayed onset muscle soreness. Okay. Who would that be? People I know, they tend to be endurance athletes, runners, cyclists, not so much swimmers, but actually a lot of cyclists. Um, cyclists are out training a lot longer than pretty much most people. Why? Because they can. They're not beating their body up, so they could literally mm -hmm. go out for hours. So within that context, branched-chain amino acids are useful. Now, people say, well, wouldn't they get the same benefit from protein? My answer to that is try drinking whey protein while you cycle. Just <laughs> You know, if you're out there biking and it's, you know, it's, it's 30 degrees centigrade in Florida and you're biking, are you really going to drink a whey protein shake? I don't think so. That keeps <laughs> real well on a bike. In the sun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. However, you can get mixes of branched chain amino acids. It's fairly light because it's only three amino acids and you can keep that in a shaker bottle and you can drink it while you cycle. Um, and so there's a utility to it. I think, I think this is the problem. Uh, people get very, uh, what's the word? It's, uh, it's not the echo chamber. It's their view is so narrow and parochial that they only view it through the lens of bodybuilding. It's okay. like, well, if it doesn't help muscle hypertrophy, it's a waste of time. I'm like, well, beta alanine doesn't technically help with muscle hypertrophy. I guarantee you beta alanine is a great supplement for anyone who engages in a sport where you produce a lot of acid. It's a great supplement it has nothing to do with bodybuilding. Um, so I think, once you remove the lens of this is just for physique people, then you have a much broader view of it. And with branched chain amino acids, I don't know anyone who recommends it for muscle hypertrophy. Most of the people who use it, use it for alleviating delayed onset muscle soreness. So I guess what we have to really, when it comes to supplements as a whole, we have to consider sports nutrition, not bodybuilding nutrition, more so as the lens that we're looking through. Yeah, and I think most people conflate bodybuilding nutrition with sports nutrition. 
and it, and it kind of makes sense because when you think of it, a lot of the initial practices in sports nutrition came from bodybuilding because let's face it, they were the only ones taking supplements for a while, oh, yeah. you know? So you got to give credence to the fact that it was bodybuilding that sort of pushed all this stuff to the, to the performance sports people. But now, you know, so many people in so many different um, athletic endeavors that involve performance are using supplements. Now to me, it's become a normal part of training now. And I think, um, because bodybuilders need that nutrition, that's their advantage was nutrition. You know, take the drugs out of the sport. Like, let's just, you know, live in that crazy world yeah. where we can remove any performance enhancing drug where we didn't have those and it was nutrition. Um, I think that we'd have a much better prevalence of learning from bodybuilders earlier on in translating that into if in translating that into other sports. So like if other people, other athletes, whether, you know, whether it's cyclists that you mentioned or whomever, I think if they all ate as diligently, maybe not like a bodybuilder, but as diligently as a, as a bodybuilder would, we'd yeah. see a much different athlete. Yeah. If they treat, if they treated nutrition, the way they, the way they treated training, mm -hmm. I think they'd be much better off for it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an awesome statement. So because you brought, I mean, that bit alanine was next on my list and it's uh, something that I take, especially when I'm going to be uh, hitting some conditioning, but uh, I would just kind of your viewpoint on, uh, on beta alanine. I think it's uh, after creatine and caffeine, I think it's, you know, the data is incontrovertible, plenty of data on it. If you engage in a sport where, you know, muscle skeletal muscle pH drops quite a bit. So that could be, you're a 400 meter runner, or maybe you're a wrestler, mixed martial arts uh, fighter. Um, uh, even the team sports like rugby, soccer, uh, hockey, foot, football, you are involved. Anything that is a sprint stop, sprint stop sport, where you're producing enough of a, a acidic environment and muscle, beta alanine is going to help. Um, it, maybe not as much as, let's say, caffeine or creatine, but it'll help quite a bit. Now, the sports that won't help would be things like baseball, softball, where most of it is you're just waiting, 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 and you're reacting. Yeah. But if it's sprint, stop, sprint, stop. I mean, I would even apply it to tennis players because tennis is sprint, stop, sprint, stop. It's going to help. It's one of the more effective supplements. Oddly enough, it's one of the few I don't take because I'm not a fan of the paresthesia. I, okay. Yeah, I, I, it just kind of bugs me. So I'm like, you know, I don't want to deal with it. I still, I still remember one of the first times that I used to train with a couple of people, just, I was training a couple of times a day. So I'd have multiple training partners and I didn't ever touch it. This was like years and years ago and I've never really touched onto it. And I had a figure competitor that I was training with. She turns around doing this. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God, what's going on? She's like, here, you got to try this. I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> funny. Then <laughs> um, so next one kind of, uh, taurine, what is uh, for you? What is your uh, your view on taurine? I don't think there's enough data to supplement taurine as a single amino acid. Um, I know it's in a lot of, um, I mean, it's an energy drink. I, I, Red Bull, it's probably the most popular one. Some mm. evidence showing that it might alleviate muscle soreness. But at this point, I don't even put it as, I don't put it on my list of things you should take. Okay. That's pretty much what I, what I figured. Um, and citrulline melee. Um, an interesting amino acid, um, although there's not a lot of data, I think it's worth trying. If you're in a okay. sport, I think in, particularly an endurance sport, um, I think it might be worth, you know, giving it a shot. In fact, uh, 
Uh, we had a webinar, I think it was, a, uh, it was last year where, uh, I forget who it was, he covered the science of citrulline and that, you know, there's some interesting things there in terms of how it might help, you know, uh, endurance and stuff. In fact, I sort of liken it to um, the nitrates or beetroot juice, um, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, it, it can enhance blood flow. And by doing that, it can, and in fact, the data on nitrates or in beetroot juice is much, much better than the, even the data on citrulline. But again, with that, uh, the taste is so bad that I can't do it. Some people don't mind the taste, but to me, it's like, <laughs> ugh, I can't, I, you got to make it taste like cotton candy if you want me to try it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, betaine. Uh, <laughs> there's some interesting data on that, but what I find odd is that there's not many studies on it. You think more no. people would do studies on it? I mean, it might help, you know, strength and power. Uh, the dosing isn't that high. So that, you know, I always, one of the first things I do is look at the dose. I'm like, is it, is it feasible? I'm like, well, it is feasible with this supplement, but really not many studies on it. In fact, um, I don't know, maybe I'll get a grad student to do a study on it just because, you know, it's sort of like creatine back in the 1990s, there wasn't much on it. And then, you know, as more people did it, it's like, oh, there's something interesting here, but I don't recommend that based on, I'm not sure it really works, even though there's some promising data. Oh, that's awesome. We, uh, I just started to look at like the, over the past year, kind of when I could find, I couldn't find much really on it that, uh, especially for my application that I would use either for myself or any of my clients. So. Right. And what about uh, glycine? I don't think there's any value to it. Um, no. I, I will say all the other ones you've mentioned before. Um, I don't think there's any harm in trying it. Um, because it either helps you or has a neutral effect. There's no negative right. effect. So that's always, that's always been my personal view. If it helps, if it possibly helps you or does nothing, it's still worth trying. Um, glycine, I, I would tell it probably does nothing. Okay, <laughs> so. Cool. so um, of course we hear so much nowadays about hunger hormones like leptin and ghrelin. Um, it, it's so, I think that people are really getting too close to the issue when it comes to those hormones when they don't have a lot other kind of figured out, but what's your views on uh, someone's, whether their ability to control that through food or exercise or a combination of both? Well, I think this focus on hormones, whether it's ghrelin or leptin or, or even insulin, um, it's, it's almost like there's this focus on, well, it's, you're focused on something you're, you can't measure anyways. I mean, the average person can't measure any of this. So no why would you worry about it? You know, it's not like you have access to a lab where they measure, measure these uh, uh, peptides, you know, easily. So to me, you know, in terms of um, suppressing appetite or, or affecting appetite, because I think that's ultimately what they're talking about. Um, you're better off, I mean, you're better off just figuring out what foods seem to do it and what foods don't. Now, now this is where it gets interesting. You know, the idea that protein-containing foods tend to be the most satiating and that you seem to be less hungry, which seems to be true for a lot of people. However, I've, I know people who say fat is very satiating, that if they eat a higher fat meal, they tend to not be hungry. So to me, a lot of it is trial and error. And to me, that's the only way you could do this because, you know, focusing on these hormones, um, you know, I think we can go back to the 1990s where people focused on if I could elevate testosterone when I train, you know, then I'll get better, you know, better training results when in fact, well, you can't even measure your testosterone. So how the hell would you know? I mean, um, I think people, they almost tend to make things more complicated than it needs. Oh my to. God. Yeah. Yes. 
And that's when some, because also I have a supplement company as well that I uh, sell supplements, but uh, the amount of stuff that I actually sell is pretty low comparison to many other things. Cause there's just, someone will ask, Hey, well, how about this testosterone booster? And I say, okay, great. It also is going to boost your estrogen as well. Do you really still want it? And then they kind of give me this funny look. Yeah, it might raise one, but something else is going to happen too. It's not just this singular event or singular thing that's going to happen. So um, I feel that people have to get a grip more so on the absolute basics. You know, just like playing any sport like baseball, you coaching baseball, you weren't teaching them how to hit it out of the park before they could hold their bat. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, you you know, you got to crawl before you uh, walk. I mean, take small steps. You got to take small steps. Don't think that, you know, don't don't get the training program or eating program of a world-class athlete, you know, get something that works for you first. Absolutely. And I think that many coaches, and I used, I did this like earlier in the days where, Hey, this worked for me. So it's going to work for you. Yeah. But then when I started to study more and more, and then to study to, to, to write the ISSN exam was like, Whoa, like I've got a, I have a lot to learn. There's a <laughs> lot more to this than, Hey, yeah. Eat more protein, eat more carbs and you're going to perform great. You know, although it's not wrong, but there's more, more to life than, than that. So yeah. Um, that was, yeah, I'm super excited that you t- obviously you took the time to do this. Um, and that, uh, social media kind of gave me the opportunity to, to meet, you know, someone like you and, uh, uh, some other researchers that have changed me as a coach. It just Good. made me a better coach, obviously wanting to read the research, I guess was kind of, um, and how you mentioned if, you know, sports nutrition was actually something to study back when it was time to go to post-sec, I, probably would have pursued that back then you know yeah in fact i purposely when, when i was uh in my phd program i actually like i i liked sports nutrition at the time but i realized there's literally nowhere in the country to study it nowhere when i was in grad school but it's something that in the back of my mind i'm like but that's what i want to do so what's my second most uh, uh what's the subject matter that's interesting to me outside of sports nutrition I was always interested in skeletal muscle physiology. And that's when I did that work on muscle fiber hypertrophy and hyperplasia. This is back in the 1990s. But once I graduated, I'm like, I I need to figure out how to get into sports nutrition. And as myself and Dr. Jeff Sout found out, we basically got to create the category. I mean, someone has to do it. So I guess, well, why don't we just do it since no one else is really doing it. Now, quick quick, uh, sidebar uh, note to that. At the time when all these PhDs and MDs were making fun of supplements and sports nutrition. There was one supplement. They didn't call it a supplement, though, that they all loved. It was called Gatorade. <laughs> so, and I always found it ironic. I'm like, okay, so you don't think supplements work? Isn't Gatorade a supplement? I mean, there's no Gatorade trees. I mean, it's a supplement. <laughs> but they treated Gatorade. Well, that's Gatorade. That's not pro. I'm like, it's a supplement. So, all these people are very anti-supplement back in the nineties were telling people to drink Gatorade. I'm like, that's a supplement. It's just in liquid form, but it was, just, it was crazy. <laughs> well, and that, that was, I still remember back, back in the day, my first, I guess my, my first iteration when it comes to my idea of sports nutrition was seeing Gatorade was I think the first thing that any kid ever seen back, back then um, and arguing with my teacher of water versus Gatorade. 
you know, to try to find what I could. Internet really wasn't much of a thing back then. So for no. me to try to find any book that had anything to do. So he started getting, well, these carb things, I think if I eat, just eat more of them, I'll probably do better. You know, if that was like the most rudimentary, you know, N1 experiment that I think ever existed. So, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So is there anything new that you've seen the last little while in research or anything that you've kind of uh, touched on or super interesting that's come across your desk that you feel might be, uh, might be worth a mention? Well, I would mention this. Um, <clears throat> I've broadened my research to involve a little bit of neuroscience. So I collaborate with the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at my university, um, looking at the broad field of sports neuroscience. And one of the things we looked at initially was the effects of creatine on the brain how it affected cognition. And we're, we're going to publish a paper later this year where, and this is one of the few times I've done studies in untrained people. I, I, I don't like to deal with untrained people because I just don't. <laughs> but we have this huge pool of untrained college students. And um, we did a study where we gave creatine and we administered different tests of cognition. And oddly enough, the ones who were less trained or some were actually less trained and untrained, and there was a small group that were trained in this group. There was a fairly large group. Um, the ones who were less trained or untrained were the ones who responded better to creatine in terms of these cognitive tests. Which oh, okay. I, I was like, wow, that's really weird. I wouldn't expect that, but <laughs> that's why you do the study because sometimes you get weird results and like, okay, so now you don't necessarily have to be someone who exercises to get the benefits of creatine or the brain. And, you know, for people who sell creatine, you actually have now another demographic. You could target college students who don't work out. It'll help their brain. So to me, that's kind of cool. In fact, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff in the field of exercise physiology where, <clears throat> you know, I tell, I tell everyone that exercise physiology is really good at studying what happens from the neck down. We know what happens to the heart, skeletal muscle, bone, etc. We're not really good at the neck up stuff because let's face it, the brain's more complicated. So if you collaborate with the neuroscience people who don't know much of the neck down, it forms a nice alliance. So, um, so that's really the area that I'm starting to go into a bit more. Again, focusing on nutrition and exercise, how it affects the brain. Well, that's amazing. I think I, I do a lot of work with a, a local, uh, local athletic therapist who does a lot with the concussion, uh, concussion patients. Um, obviously in the sport, like hockey, it's prevalent, obviously, um, figure skating, same mm -hmm. thing. Um, did, I couldn't believe that so many people, uh, that, uh, get into horseback riding, the amount of concussions that come out of there as well. Yes. That's, yeah. that was a mind blower to be honest. But, uh, I think to do a lot of work with her and kind of to see how, however we can make an athlete's life a little bit better and get them back playing the sport that they love, regardless if it's for a paycheck or just for the love of the game. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, for some reason, I never think of that sport, equestrian or horseback riding. And in fact, probably some of the more traumatic injuries happen there. And also, also, um, I don't know if there's much data on it, but bull riding and uh, bronco riding, uh, going to the rodeo, I would imagine they probably get a lot of head trauma being thrown off a bull. I mean, that can't be good for your head. Uh, <laughs> there's only one result there. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm like, who the hell gets on a bull? 
(laughs) to ride it. I'm like, I'm like, that's kind of crazy. (laughs) I won't even go down a trail on a bike anymore, let alone ride a bull. So (laughs) (laughs) see, you've gotten smarter with age, (laughs) right? Yeah. So I really appreciate you doing this, Dr. Antonio. I know you're a really busy guy and just kind of taking the time. Um, wish that we could, uh, head down to South Florida to obviously be at the conference. That's, uh, Next year, you should do it next year. Um, we are in uh, it's June, I think it's June 16, 17. Next year, we're in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay, awesome. Um, and definitely, beach, and I know, I know there's no beach where you are, there's a beach down here. Not uh, not like the ones down there, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, so I super appreciate the time, uh, connecting. Uh, obviously, just uh, you're welcome. With, um, and yeah, I hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Troy. I appreciate it. You got it. All right. Bye-bye.